0: Friends, please join me now in going to God one more time in prayer. We show up here every Sunday needy and desperate for God to come and minister to us. And our hope and confidence is that he is utterly faithful to us all the time. And so let's go and ask him for his help as we'll now look to his word. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you acknowledging that we are sinners and that we are in need of your grace. We pray that you would be good to us, that you would be gracious, and that you would show yourself to be faithful to us yet again this morning as we look to your word. We do pray that by your spirit, that you would accompany the words that come out of my mouth and use them for the purposes that you have ordained. We pray that you would give us eyes to see what is true and good, that you would give us ears to hear it and hearts that would gladly receive it. We pray as we consider your word that we would see Christ and that in beholding him, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Friends, we come today to the last of nine sermons in Proverbs 1 to 9. So there have been eight sermons before this one in Proverbs 1 to 8. And as we've considered those passages for a number of weeks now, Solomon, the writer of Proverbs, has continued to instruct his proverbial sons and thereby us about the goodness and the value of wisdom. Solomon has continued throughout these chapters to also write much. He has spilled a lot of ink on the fear of the Lord—that phrase continues to come up over and over again—and to nobody's surprise, we will see these same themes and these same truths again today in Proverbs nine. In thinking about this kind of repetition, consider the words of Paul in Philippians three, one, where he writes to the Christians in Philippi: "To write the same things to you is no trouble to me." and is safe for you. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. If that was true of Paul and his repetition of basic gospel truth over and over and over again in his letters, it is true for us in terms of what we need, that we need this kind of continual, repetitive teaching regarding what is good and wise and true. That's frankly because, friends, we tend to forget. We tend to forget what's good. We tend to forget what is right and what is true. As redeemed children of God, we are in Christ by faith. Amen. We are having our minds renewed by the Spirit of Christ working in us. Amen. And because we are not fully sanctified, We still battle sin. We still battle effects of the fall. And this affects tremendously our understanding. It affects what we think. and It affects what we feel. It affects what we desire. We need regular, consistent teaching from the Word of God, and we need the gospel heralded to us. And I include myself in that number. We need the gospel heralded to us all the time because we are so prone to forget it. This is why we are told in God's word to assemble together regularly, because we need this. And so we trust God as we turn to Proverbs 9, that as we consider wisdom and folly and the fear of the Lord again, that it is good for us and that it is safe for us. And so, if you have not already done so, open your Bibles or make your way in your Bible app to Proverbs 9. We will be looking at all 18 verses of that chapter together this morning. Before I say anything else, I will read God's word for us. Listen now to the word of God Wisdom has built her house, she has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts, she has mixed her wine, she has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman, Folly, is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. You probably can see this as easily as I can, that this passage breaks down into three obvious sections. So I have three points for us today that correspond to those three sections. I will not be preaching them in order, however, sequentially. So we're going to take the first section, the third section, and then conclude with the middle one. So let's begin with section one, point number one, which we will entitle the call of wisdom. The call of wisdom. We're going to look at verses one to six for just a few moments together. Just as a note, verses 1 to 6 and then verses 13 to 18 are parallels. One pertaining to the call of wisdom, one pertaining to the call of folly or foolishness. So put your eyes on verse 1. There we read that wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. Wisdom has built a solid and a stable household as represented by the language of seven pillars. Seven being a number symbolic of perfection in Scripture verse 2, we see that wisdom has prepared a meal and has set her table. Wisdom as well, in verse 3, has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Wisdom is here personified and she is calling to people through her servants to heed what she has to say. In verses 4 to 6, we see what wisdom's call is. Whoever is simple, that is whoever is foolish... Let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So wisdom has built this solid and stable house. She has prepared a banquet, a good meal to be eaten in the light. And she is inviting the simple and the foolish to come and partake. Come and eat, come and drink, come and live. Leave your foolish ways. Come and find life and come and walk in the way of insight. Now let's look together briefly at the parallel, the call of folly. So this is the second point, the second section, the call of folly from verses 13 to 18. Whereas wisdom has built this stable household, We read that in verse 1. In verse 13, where folly shows up, we read that the woman folly, again, folly is personified here as a woman. She is loud. She makes quite a scene. She draws attention, perhaps to herself. She is seductive and yet knows nothing. She is alluring. She is appealing. Yet there is no wisdom to be found with her. In verses 14 and 15, we see that she too calls from the highest places in the town. She calls to those who pass by. She calls to those who are just going straight on their way. In calling to those who are going straight on their way, she is attempting to seduce them, to draw them in. In verses 16 and 17, we see her call, the call of the woman folly. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. It's the same words that wisdom had used, verses before. To him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. This is an enticement to something forbidden. Stolen water, it tastes better. Bread that's been stolen and eaten in secret tastes better. Folly is saying to any who will listen, sin makes things more enjoyable. Sin makes things more pleasurable. It's more exciting. It's more gratifying. You know that you want it, come on in and partake. You don't need me to tell you that in our fallenness, in Adam, sin is attractive. Because of our corruption, we find sin attractive. It looks good to us. We have cravings and desires in our fallen flesh that are intense. So when folly uses these words of stolen water is sweet and bread that's eaten in secret is pleasant, you know this sounds good. Come on in. We often do come in and partake. We are in Adam as fallen men and women. We are naturally inclined toward evil and not righteousness. Folly says to us, This forbidden thing, this sinful thing, this will be sweet. And Satan shows up and whispers in our ear and he says, the fruit, the fruit, it looks good, doesn't it? That fruit, it looks really good, doesn't it? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat that? And so people eat and people drink to our ruin and devastation. In verse 18, Solomon tells us what is the end of folly. What will foolishness get us? Where does it lead? He, the one who turns in, the simple one, the foolish one, who turns in to drink the stolen water and eat the stolen bread in secret, does not know that the dead are there. And that the guests of folly are are in the depths of Sheol. That is the realm of death. You see, wisdom. If you think about the the parallel and the contrast between wisdom and foolishness, wisdom invites us to eat meat and drink wine that gives life. She says, "Come and eat and drink and live and do this in the light." Folly, however, entices us. She preys upon our Corruption and our inherent wickedness and says, come, drink stolen water and eat stolen bread in secret because it will be good for you. It will be enjoyable for you. But whereas wisdom brings life, folly brings nothing but death and ruin and misery. Friends, even here, as we see Solomon poetically depict wisdom and foolishness. He is again exhorting his proverbial sons to whom he is writing and he is thereby exhorting us to choose wisdom and to not choose folly. That's clear. He has been doing this from the beginning of the book. He has spilled a lot of ink telling us not to pursue certain things, not to choose certain things. I'm just going to give you a highlight list of some of the things that Solomon has written about. Do not choose or pursue the following. Thievery. So don't take things that aren't yours. Do not pursue adultery and sexual sin. Don't even go near it. Because if you do, you will be burned. Do not choose deceit and lying. Do not manipulate other people. Do not choose the way of pride. For it will be your downfall. Do not choose the way of crookedness in the ways that you interact with others. Do not be divisive. Do not choose the way of sowing discord amongst brothers Do not choose the way of scheming and plans that are meant to harm other people. Don't do that. Do not choose the way of laziness. Do not choose the way of vindictiveness. Do not choose the way of violence. That's just to name a few. In warning against all of these things, Solomon has been very clear. Don't do these things. Don't choose these things. Don't go that way because it will destroy your life. In writing that way and in exhorting us that way and in warning us that way, Solomon is simply teaching the law of God in a way that accords with what is known as the second use of God's law. I'll just For everybody here, I want to continue to summarize the way God's law has been understood throughout church history. It's good for us to know these things. The first use of God's law has been understood to show us our sin as we compare ourselves to God's righteous standard. We see how far short we fall and thereby we are driven to Christ as the only hope of our salvation. That's the first use. We'll consider that more later. The second use of God's law is to restrain our corruption Because we are inclined toward evil, we need God's law to restrain our actions and our behavior. So there is a lot of language in Scripture. Don't do these things because it will ruin your life. Do these things because it will be good for your life. That's the second use of the law. And then finally, the third use for those of us in Christ Jesus is to be our perfect guide in living. And we pray that by the Spirit of Christ working in us, we are conformed to what God has revealed. So in the church, friends, it's appropriate that we would talk to one another in accordance with the right uses of God's law. So in thinking about this kind of use that Solomon is demonstrating here again in Proverbs 9, it's good that we would talk to one another with clarity, with love and with compassion and with honesty. As we are in one another's lives, as we walk together, there will be many times where we all are tempted by sin, where things are not going well, and where we are prepared perhaps to make terrible decisions and go in a way that we should not go. In times like that, it's good that we would speak to each other this way and say, brother, sister, do not do that. Flee from that because this will destroy your life. Or it's good for us on the flip side to encourage and exhort one another toward obedience to God's law. Brother, sister, keep pursuing that because that will be good for you. We should speak as the Scripture does when it comes to these matters. God's law is wonderful. God's law is good. And we, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, we uphold the law as long as it is used lawfully. And that's what we're considering even here today, again, from the book of Proverbs. Let's move to point number three, section three, and there will be some more reflections that follow this. This one, this point is entitled the way of wisdom and the way of folly. So we're going to look at verses seven to 12. So first we considered the call of wisdom from verses one to six. Then we considered the call of folly from verses 13 to 18. And we are now considering lastly, the way of wisdom and the way of folly from verses seven through 12. Put your eyes on verse seven. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. So those who are foolish, those who are scoffers, those who are wicked, Solomon is kind of using those terms relatively interchangeably. People like that do not receive correction. They don't receive reproof. And he says that if you try to correct or reprove such a person, that all you get in return is abuse, injury, and hatred from them. Now, on the flip side, let's look at the second half of verse 8 into verse 9. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. So in contrast to the foolish and to the scoffers and to the wicked, the wise and the righteous welcome correction. The wise and the righteous person welcomes reproof and admonishment. We're told by Solomon that if you correct or reprove a wise person, he or she will love you for that. If you give instruction to a wise man, and in the context, it's clear that that would be corrective instruction, right? If you give instruction to a wise man, he will continue to grow in his wisdom. He will profit from that instruction. And if you teach a righteous man, he will increase in learning. Teach, correct, rebuke a righteous man or woman, and he or she will continue to learn and grow. just a brief thought about wisdom. Being wise does not mean that you never get it wrong. Being wise does not mean that you never err. Being wise means that you humbly receive correction when you do get it wrong and when you do err. Being wise doesn't mean that you have it all figured out. Being wise doesn't mean that you have nothing left for anybody to teach you. Being wise does mean that you are humbly aware that you don't have it all figured out and that you have much still to learn. So I think it's fair to say and accurate to say based upon Proverbs and the language that Solomon has continued to use and uses most pointedly here, that humility and self-awareness are indispensable pieces of wisdom. Humility and self-awareness are, hum- are essential and indispensable pieces of wisdom. So is being teachable. Let's put our eyes now on verses 10 through 12. I'm just gonna read verse 10. We're gonna come back to it in just a moment. The fear of the Lord, there's that phrase again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's at the bottom of it. We're going to think about that more in a minute. And the knowledge of the Holy One, the Holy One is the Lord, is insight. Now, verse 11, for by me, that is wisdom, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. So this again, friends, is a kind of second use of the law. Abide by wisdom and you will be profited. You will be blessed. And remember that under the old covenant, which we are under as we are considering Proverbs, right? This is that era of redemptive history under the old covenant, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenant were still in effect. God under that covenant had promised temporal blessings to his people for obedience to the law. If you act wisely, if you obey, I will prosper you. Think about the language even contained in the Ten Commandments, in particular, the fifth commandment about honoring your father and mother. What does Moses write? He says, honor your father and mother so that your days will be long in the land that the Lord your God will give you. So he's continuing, Solomon is to exhort us in those ways. By wisdom, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. You will prosper. And even though we are not under the old covenant anymore, we still would look to this and say, wisdom is good for our lives and it is good for us to abide by it. Verse 12, if you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Here, you have the text in front of you. You can evaluate this for yourself too. Here, it seems that an eternal scope is brought into this consideration. It's brought into this conversation. In this verse, Solomon is not saying that our wisdom or our foolishness does not affect other people. That would contradict much of what he has already written. There is no sin that's private. Like your sin, no matter what it is, will always affect the lives of others. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, I can think of a few sins that might not do that, brother. I'm happy to talk after the service because I I don't think it's possible for sin to not affect other people. And Solomon has been quite clear that our neighbors need our good works and our neighbors need our wisdom. So he is not contradicting that at all in verse 12. When he says, if you are wise, you are wise for yourself. I think he means if you are truly wise in a fear of the Lord sense, that will be good for you eternally. And if you scoff, you alone will bear it. If you are foolish in a not fearing the Lord kind of way, that will be bad for you eternally. In other words, you alone will bear the weight of your own iniquity as we all will stand before God and give an account. So, friends, as we are nearing the end of our time today and thereby this series in Proverbs 1 to 9, let us turn our attention back one more time to the fear of the Lord. It merits our attention because it comes up over and over and over again. Verse 10, I'm going to read it one more time. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So none of the things that I am about to say could ever be said too much. It's kind of that Philippians 3.1. To continue to say the same things to you and to myself is of no trouble and it's safe. What follows are things that comprise Fear of the Lord. So if you were to ask that question, brother, how should we understand fear of the Lord? I'll offer a few points. First, fear of the Lord would certainly include reverence for God. Reverence for God. The Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, is holy. He is righteous. He is just and he is good. Completely. There is no darkness in him. The Lord is upright and never sins. As Moses writes of him in Deuteronomy 32, the rock, as he calls it, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Praise be to his name. This is the God in Isaiah 6, right? Where? The prophet writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne. The king is dead, the Lord is not. And there are angels flying around him all the time, shielding their eyes because he's so holy, crying out incessantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. The fear of the Lord, friends, certainly includes reverence for God. Secondly, fear of the Lord must include understanding what God requires. This holy, righteous, just, perfect God requires something of us, the creatures that He has made. And where would we understand His requirements? Where would we get them? We get them, you're probably tracking with me, we get them from His perfect and holy law. His law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. It's summarized even more succinctly by Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up all the law and the prophets, Christ says. But what kind of obedience, we might ask, is required by God to that law? Consider the words of Christ. Matthew chapter 5. You must be perfect. What You you must be perfect, he says, as your heavenly Father is perfect. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Understanding what God requires is an essential piece of fear of the Lord. This holy, perfect God requires perfect obedience to his holy law which leads us to a third piece of fearing the Lord. That would be seeing ourselves rightly in light of God's holiness and in light of his law. Seeing ourselves rightly in light of God's holiness and in light of his law. So you're probably sitting there just as I am, thinking about God's standard and what he has revealed and the fact that we must obey it perfectly. And you're thinking, brother, I'm ruined. I'm undone. You see, that first function of the law is to crush us. It's to crush any hope that we would have in ourselves and in our own righteousness. As the psalmist says in Psalm 130 in verse three, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Answer, nobody. Which brings us, though, to the next piece of the fear of the Lord. It's reverence for God, one, Two, understanding what he requires. Three, seeing ourselves rightly in light of his holiness and in light of his law. Four, thereby believing God's way of salvation. Believing God's way of salvation. It is the natural progression. And what is God's way of salvation? It has a name. His name is Jesus. He is the promised seed of Abraham. Through whom the nations would be blessed. When Paul says that the gospel was preached to Abraham in his letter to the Galatians, he's very clear that the gospel was preached to Abraham via the promised seed to come, namely Christ. Jesus is the one who would keep the law of Moses in the place of his people. He's the one whose blood would actually take away sins. Something that the blood of bulls and goats could never do, the blood of Christ has done once and for all. Jesus is the son of David who would represent his people, who would atone for their sins and provide them with righteousness. Jesus is the one who would fulfill literally everything that was revealed in the old covenant. He says himself again in Matthew 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Fear of the Lord, friends, necessarily means that we understand that salvation only comes through union with Christ by faith. And then finally, one more piece that would comprise fear of the Lord is somewhat assumed in all the things said thus far, and that is repentance. Repentance. We've talked about this before as a church and we'll keep talking about it. Repentance biblically The word used is a change of mind. It means that our minds have been changed about stuff, really important stuff. We have come by the sovereign grace of God. We have come to agree with God about who he is and what he requires. And we've come to agree with him about us and about what we need. And in coming to agree with God on all of those things, we have run to Christ in faith. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Indeed, it is. It's the bottom of real, lasting wisdom. A practical exercise, very quickly, friends, in wisdom, a practical exercise in fear of the Lord, would be to answer the question, how is it that we are righteous before God? It's a great way to assess fear of the Lord and wisdom. How is it that we, fallen, sin-sick, wretches, how is it that we are righteous before God? How would a wise person who fears the Lord answer that question? I think saints through history have gotten it right. If you have not read this before, look up question and answer number 60 from the Heidelberg Catechism this afternoon. It will bless you. The question is, how are you righteous before God? And the answer reads this way. This is dripping in wisdom and fear of God. How are you righteous before the Lord? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. So that though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them and am still inclined to all evil. Notwithstanding God without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness of Christ. Even so, It's as if I never had had nor ever committed any sin. Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. How are you righteous before God? Only by faith in Christ. Even though my conscience and God's law rightly accuse me that I've broken all of His commands, that I've never really kept one, and that I still sin? that God, apart from anything that I bring to the table, apart from any working or any earning anything, counts to me the righteousness, holiness, and satisfaction of Christ. Holy smokes, that's gospel. It is as though I had never committed a sin. It is as though I never had any sin in my nature. And it is as though I really did all of the righteous works that Christ did all over. Counted to me by faith. That is an answer to the question, How are you righteous before God? That is saturated with the fear of the Lord and is saturated with wisdom. In putting a bow on Proverbs one to nine, I want to offer this is very brief. I want to offer five just little handles that would I think define wisdom fairly well. So you say pastor give me a takeaway. Give me something that I can write down in bullet point form that maybe will be helpful to me. Here's my shot at that. Wisdom from Proverbs 1 to 9. Five things. 1. We love our neighbor. 2. If it's good, we pursue it. Number 3. If it's evil, we run from it. Number 4. We walk humbly before our God. Number 5. We trust Christ because He is our only hope of salvation. I hope it's helpful to you. It's helpful to me. Let's now go to the Lord in prayer, brothers and sisters. We need His help. If this sermon is going to be of any use to us, we need His help. If the table is going to be of use to us, we need His help. So let's go and ask Him for that now. Father, we do come to You at the conclusion of this sermon and acknowledge that we are just as needy now as we were when it started. Father, I pray that you would take the water of my words and the water of my efforts and turn it into wine for these dear people. We pray, Father, that you would continue to come and minister to us as we come to your table to receive the merits and the benefits of Christ by faith. Father, we are far from perfect. We are often foolish. We pray that you would continue to make us wiser by your Spirit as we trust in your Son, who is our righteousness and who is our wisdom. We thank you for him. And we pray for your continued working in our lives in his name. Amen.